0: hello and welcome to another episode of the social review podcast i am your host jasper at JasperCh on twitter and joining me this week we have got
1: uh eugenie at memes td on twitter
2: joe or at steam hams on twitter
0: today marks one week since boris johnson became prime minister which means we're now living in a post boris world um i can see the fires stretching up to my window already um And the predicted Boris bounce has happened in the polls. The Conservatives seem to be leading in all the polls which have been done this week. The most recent one, which came out this morning from YouGov, showed the Conservatives on 32% of the vote and at Labour 10% below. Um, So what we're going to be talking about this week is uh, the possibility of that early election, which has been also much predicted over the past week, um, what that could mean for Labour, what Labour should be doing to uh, shore up their position in that early election and whether Labour actually has any chance of winning it. So, Joe and Eugenie, um, right off the bat, do you think Labour can win the next general election?
2: It depends what you mean by win. Do I think they can win a majority? Probably not. Um, I think so. I think the slightly terrifying thing about this election um, is going to be um, that. Everything is so influxing up in the end. Like you've got essentially three, and I guess the Brexit party is being sort of eaten away at now. So maybe it's three and a half parties rather than four parties. But either way, there's about there's, there's a lot of um, competitiveness. Everyone, no one's got a particularly high sort of vote share, although the Tory one's got that Boris bounce at the minute. I think it's really hard to know exactly how it shapes up because we don't know whether it's going to happen in a, a run-up to October 31st, we don't know whether it's going to happen after octo- October 31st, we don't know if it's going to happen after a no deal or after Boris is compromised and, and taken a deal or something. I think it's really hard to know exactly how it's all going to fall, and you could, I could easily see a situation where the most hard-right Tory um, government in what seems like a long time, perhaps ever, um, wins a majority, but I can also see a situation in which Labour is the largest party in a minority government and it feels like both those scenarios are are as likely. So um, that's sort of what's most terrifying, I think, because you do look at the Tories swing to the right and it, and it almost feels like there's no way they should be able to sort of command any sort of widespread support in the country, but But it feels just as likely that they can cobble something together as the Labour Party can. So, yeah, it's scary, I think.
1: I do think it's good to remember that when Theresa May won her leadership contest uh, in the heady days of uh, a couple of years ago, um, it did feel like it was, you know, she had her bounce in the polls and you had that Daily Mail front page, you know, the rise of the Iron Lady or whatever it was. And uh, now we look back on it and it all seems a bit like embarrassing. And I was just thinking when that um, son, oh no, maybe it was the male as well, had the front page of uh, John, John's son uh, with the heatwave and him, him winning the leadership election and there being all this kind of optimism about, you know, another however many decades we we'll get of Tory, Tory he- hegemonic rule. But, you know, the the first week is always uh, the time when, you know, they're, they're riding highest and they haven't been tested or challenged in in, in any way. So... I do think it's good to take any kind of polling at this point with a pinch of salt. That's that's not to say get complacent. I certainly wouldn't be advocating that. And I think that, you know, the threat of having Pretty Patel as Home Secretary for the next five, ten years, if that's not keeping you up at night, I don't know what will. Although I, I considerably doubt her ability to stay uh, stay in the position without getting herself in lots of trouble and probably getting fired. But um, I'm a bit reticent at this point maybe to, to internalise too deeply polling before... We see the first real test of the government. What's going to be the first, the first great issue, the first big crisis, basically, when they have to actually act and do something rather than just kind of standing around making speeches full of optimism and kind of guff or whatever. Um, so it would be interesting to see, you know, how how the chips fall as they may, and then you know, Labour's response then to the to any kind of challenges will be potentially more telling than the current situation. But I don't know how you feel about that
2: yeah and I think it's it's I think it's true as well that if you look at say the Boris bounce compared to the uh sort of traditional um new leader bounce it, it's not as stark and it's not as pronounced so I think mean, that's definitely true I think for from a Labour Party perspective it's and in fact from a Lib Dem perspective as well there's a sort of um there's a danger which also has yeah there is a danger I think where um, the Remain vote is split and the Brexit vote unites behind the Conservative Party. I think that is a genuine danger. But as you say, we don't know the context of this election. We don't know the circumstances yet. So looking at polling and taking too much from it is definitely a danger that you see lots of people falling into. I think the other slightly underrated thing, having said, looking at polling is dangerous at this point. I do think it's interesting the sort of 10-ish Percent that the Green Party are getting as well, I think, um, cohering a sort of remain and making a remain informal alliance and ensuring that the the correct the votes are falling in the correct places and 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 things um, is going to be vital to sort of beating um, that the social conservative conservative forces in both the Conservative Party and in um, the Tory party I say that as someone who's very very suspicious of any sort of alliance like that I don't want a formal pact but some sort of Lib Dems running in Tory and Lib Dem marginals a bit harder and the Labour Party stepping back that kind of thing is obviously qu- sensible politics in my opinion but it's, hu- it's hard to know because we don't know the context yet
1: I think you've also touched on that something that I've been thinking quite a lot about recently and I'm not sure how much of this I could ever back up with a huge amount of, kind of polling or data but from my own um kind of personal experience talking to I would say young people young <laughs> metropolitan liberals who live in cities which is uh, very revealing about me and my social groups but anyway um that I I wonder if Labour isn't considering or should be considering what the Green Party represents to them in greater depth because I think previously they've just kind of thought okay we can hoover up all those votes because if you like Caroline and Lucas you probably like Jeremy Corbyn but i think the threat of the greens as people who can erode away majorities especially in um in seats where the main fight is between kind of left parties um is something to consider because i think for many many young younger people um the green party represent if you're discontented with the labor party for whatever reason whether it's anti-semitism or a failure to deal with um brexit properly or any numerous other you know issues you might have with labour as it is at the moment and you're not willing to move towards the lib dems because um you know tuition fees or the coalition government this is especially important if joe swinson is going to stand and defend the coalition government uh you know whether that's kind of alienating to to younger people and then the green party then kind of turns into the alternative that you might vote for and i don't necessarily think this will lead to them winning more seats but if you're thinking about vote share and that you know how important it is in first past the post that you be the person who squeaks through um if you're if you're losing a section of people who really should be voting labor um you know from a kind of demographic point of view and you know on paper but for whatever reason might not want to be i think the greens is um is a is a threat and maybe that isn't being quite being considered enough but i honestly i have no idea how they're gonna deal with that apart from you know clean up their own house but you know the very basis of our website and our um (laughs) and our mission statement is we feel like uh maybe that job isn't being done well enough at the moment so we shall see
2: and and to an extent i think the labour party uh are relying on that vote being squeezed for them by their opponents like everyone going um it's Boris or it's us. So and trying to squeeze that green vote that way. And um, I think it's always dangerous when the Labour Party is relying on sort of a negative um, message against someone rather than um, rather than putting forward a positive alternative. And I think that's clearly going to be part of their message. It's going to be it's Boris or it's Jeremy. And as a Green Party supporter, want uh, Jeremy not Boris. But I think that that's not. Going to necessarily resonate as much as something like putting forward what could be legitimately. I think it could be quite a bold uh, set of um, policies, particularly about around like climate change and the Green New Deal and the Green Industrial Revolution and all those things. Um, I think that could be a vision that you could quite easily sell, particularly to to sort of, as you say, the sort of left liberal um, metropolitan sort of group. Um, that's something that you could quite, quite effectively sell. But but my f- real fear is that we just go, we just spend the whole campaign talking about how terrible Boris will be, and I think people that are going to vote for us already agree with that, and we need to be telling them something else. Yeah.
0: Once again, uh, you've been sending us in your questions and you have sent in a lot of really fantastic questions, Um, a lot, a lot of really fantastic questions. I think this is the most questions we've ever had submitted. Thank you. So um, to mark that occasion, we're going to be doing quick fire answers round and try to answer every question or almost every question which we got in varying levels of detail. Um, We ready? We hyped?
1: you know, I've always wanted to be on University <laughs> Challenge, so lightning fire podcast questions is as close as I'm going to get at this rate. So. Will
0: Anderson asks, Hobbs or Shaw?
1: Rock all the way. Sorry, man. Shaw will we'll, we'll, we'll never forgive you for killing Han. You know, justice okay. justice for Tokyo Drift, et cetera, et
0: cetera. Joe, Hobbs or Shaw?
2: Uh, I'll go Hobbs
0: cool as did as well nice yeah exactly Thanks, Will. <laughs> uh, <laughs> matt Sampson, uh what should the replacement of universal credit look like and how come the left broadly win approval for a non-stigmatizing welfare system oh god we've got a detailed one already um, okay that's
2: fine i can do that all right cool um, go, go remove conditionalities uh as far as is plausible some sort of ubi component some sort of ubs component um but mostly it's about removing stigmatizing conditionalities and making everything a bit more universal
1: i i agree with what joe said and just also that uh to make sure that the people um who are the kind of interviewing system and, and PIP as it currently stands is just completely ill fit for purpose and not to have a welfare state structure that seems to be based around on rejecting as many people as possible. Um, it's just inhumane.
0: Oz Katterjee asks who should be on left wing Love Island? And Lines asks also where is left wing Love Island going to be? Um, Lines, uh, Le- left wing Love Island is going to be in uh, my garden probably. Um, Oz Katterjee, who should be on it? Um, no. Uh, all right. Well, <laughs> the answer is nobody and nowhere. <laughs> exactly. Eugenie, Eugenie, I, 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 will go on it, but it will just be me on holiday on an island, um, loving myself. Lines also asks, what should a future socialist government in the UK do to transform, slash, regrow, slash, expand libraries?
2: Um, build more. Yeah, they should expand, regrow, uh, and build and more libraries. <laughs> Spend
1: money! Yay! Remember when we used to yeah. invest in things? That was that was good. We should do that again. Local services are good. Councils, give the cash.
0: Oh, With Chris Williamson on the verge of being expelled, what more needs to be done to clear out crank elements from the Labour Party? Uh, and that was asked by Phil Battersby.
1: Independent compliance system.
2: Yeah, independent mm. complaints process. Um, there needs to be more work with the Jewish Labour movement in yep. terms of providing political education to CLPs. Um, yeah, and a hard line in general, like more expulsions as well. I don't think expulsions is sort of the the end of it because I think sort of sending people out of the Labour Party who still have all these anti-Semitic views isn't necessarily uh, um, like a a, a complete um, answer, but it's part of it and there needs to be an independent uh, process that oversees that.
1: Compliance needs to be needs to be massively expanded um, and it needs to be beyond. I saw a funny meme yesterday, which was like, you know, there's Celine Dion, uh, je telephoned the police. Um, it was that but someone had put je téléphone à la compliance which I don't know why that had me in hysterical laughter as you can tell um, maybe I'm going for a slightly stressful point in my life at the moment so things <laughs> maybe that aren't that funny seem much funnier to me but um, yeah just uh, a complete overhaul of how the complaint system currently works uh, would be the very baseline of what needs to be done and I agree 100% with Joe about um, political education and you know it's about it's about a reformation of the party from the bottom up um and it won't just be solved by um expelling a load of cranks and sending out um some you know like literature on why maybe calling jews lizards isn't an acceptable thing to do um so yeah i yeah we hold out hope
0: Tiran uh asks are you horny for marianne williamson no absolutely not
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, she said something quite uh, interesting yesterday. Though, let me find it. What did she say? Oh
1: no, this no. is how it starts. Joe's, Joe's, I want it Joe's. on the record that I was never, I was never willing to engage in this. <laughs>
0: you, you were never horny for
1: Marianne Williams. right? Never. So she
2: said. So obviously, last night on the debate, had like John Delaney basically saying you can't do anything. Um, so, like, no, no like, everything's impossible was basically his campaign pitch. And she said, I look at some of you and I almost wonder why you're Democrats. You almost think something is wrong with using the instruments of government to help people. That's a legitimate point from Marianne Williamson. No crystals, no anti-plan rhetoric. It was good. So All right, all right. No, but point. that was good. Okay,
1: <laughs> uh, just for that. the record, Elizabeth Warren also said something uh, pretty smart in response to the same kind of things from John Delaney. So, yeah. and she's obviously the the better candidate (laughs) (laughs) thank you i'm glad i'm glad we can agree on that
0: (laughs) we we are horny for elizabeth warren not marianne williamson that is the (laughs) exactly um sean asks should a labor government introduce regional transit authorities with integrated ticketing and operation nationwide like in germany or london or greater manchester
1: yes yes
2: sounds good write it up for the site
0: how do we force countries to accept environmental measures how internationalist must our climate emergency be asked by stephen harper
2: there's a real danger that um it we've got to be really careful that it's not built upon the back of like exploiting the global south more and there's some really good work done at the recent i think I think it's called the Labour International Forum um, about how you build a left-wing internationalism which can tackle climate change without um, exploiting the global south. So um, I would urge people to look over some of the material from Labour's international, recent Labour International Social Forum, which was really smart and good and forward-thinking. So yeah, I'd refer you to that.
0: Michael Miller, uh, how can we tackle transphobia on the left?
1: Call it out when we see it. Um, and hold people accountable for, um, you know, not not engaging with it, even in a kind of tacit dog whistle way, and um, you know, being part of the vanguard of standing in solidarity with all trans people who um, who deserve the uh, who deserve the support and respect
0: as our comrades. Previous in Europe asks uh, your podcast seems to have the momentum of a runaway freight train. Why are you so popular? ha
2: a tough question but a fair one
0: is that a simpsons quote
2: yes yeah, the simpsons quote fantastic yeah i've got nothing more to add um.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, i i think i i'm gonna try and answer this i think uh we have the momentum of a runway freight train um because we have made a lot of efforts to be well connected on the left uh, basically just twitter 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 um because we have reached out to different wings of the party um, because we operate in good faith. um, We don't attack. um, We're not factional. With regards to our editorial process, um, we are very cooperative, I would say. Um, Responsibilities are very devolved um, in regards to editing and uh, site management. Um, We discuss pretty much everything as a group um, and uh, yeah, that, allows for a very kind of like coherent and all inclusive um platform with regards to the podcast itself um we do weekly episodes um we try and make sure they're always out on a regular schedule um we always try to have as much interesting content as possible we try to be fun um we don't want to seem dry um and boring um and we want to bring people in um and yeah that's what i think it is
1: and just the allure of our dulcet tones obviously
0: (laughs) And as it says in our mission statement, we all felt that um, Labour uh, and kind of like, you know, the ideological left in general wasn't um, doing enough to offer a really coherent, new, exciting vision for the next couple of decades. Um, and we all agreed on that. Um, and then we were like, cool, what can we do to build it? And it turns out a lot of people seem to agree with us, which I guess is also why it's very popular.
2: Yeah, I guess I think that's probably quite an important thing. Like we don't necessarily all sort of share um the sort of exact same politics although some of these are pretty close but there's a sort of there's a sort of um a general sense that what we do want to see is sort of uh, there's a general direction right there's a general sort Mm -hmm. of we want a positive inclusive good faith conversation within the Labour Party and adjacent to the Labour Party and that is not does not always exist and particularly when we talk about so Twitter is basically where we do any promotion but also that is not a conversation that necessarily exists on Twitter. Um, so yeah I think it's good faith conversations with people that are don't necessarily agree agree with you but have sort of those same set of values and that's really important
0: cs jake asks in episode 2f09 when itchy plays Scratchy's skeleton like a xylophone he strikes the same rib twice in succession yet he produces two clearly different tones i mean what are we to believe that this is some sort of magic xylophone or something joe is the resident simpsons expert um is it a magic xylophone
2: (laughs) so this is i'm really enjoying all the simpsons questions um (laughs) so there was (laughs) So this is a question that is asked by I think comic book guy or one of the other nerds um, to the itchy and scratchy voice actors, and, and I think one of the other nerds yelled, "Was like, boy, I hope someone got fired for that blunder." Um, I can't actually remember the the actual answer that is given. I think <laughs> it's just I think Homer just says like "Go to hell" or something because he's poochy at this point. Anyway, um, <laughs> good question. I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Wow, I got a lot of a uh, lot of Simpsons fans in the comments I'm uh, i'm into mm. it <laughs> mm. no meaning only thirst oh, nice
0: nice name uh was the movement to ban plastic straws a success in the sense of did it achieve its own goals did it meaningfully advance ocean safety did it crowd out other actions um i think it's uh helped people see that plastic straws wasn't an end in itself um in, like there's a lot of movement in the idea that like it's not just about um cutting out plastic straws and plastic bags it's also lobbying big multinational corporations to not pollute the planet.
2: There's a success in that it seems to have achieved its goal. Um, I think there is that thing where obviously we have got personal responsibility but it's really important to emphasise those things that you really can do which are going to change sort of um, are going to have an effect on climate change and that's like um, eating less meat driving less and flying less and obviously plastic straws is good in, in, in itself but obviously though, those are bigger campaigns and harder campaigns to win and they're the ones that are going to make real differences to climate emergency or whatever so
1: yeah and I think uh, what I always think about with the plastic straws thing is actually how many how important plastic straws are or how utilized they are by disabled people so you know to kind of complicate our engagement with whether they should be banned or not or whatever um you know with metal straws potentially being uh, a health risk to some people and um, uh, cardboard straws not being useful in some circumstances. So to kind of be like, to always make sure that our engagement with these kind of campaigns always thinks, okay, there's not really going to be a one-stop solution to this. And, you know, it's good for the the, the majority of the general public to, um, to be thinking about our single-use plastics. But yeah, as you all said that, you know, to be making sure that our critiques are based on this idea that okay this is not a one-size-fits-all solution and also you know the larger structural issues do you need to continue to be targeted but that doesn't also mean that we can't make individual choices in your own life if you're able to if that makes sense you know there's a kind of a sense of uh, the kind of role of in multinational corporations and uh, kind of governmental wide international wide legislation being needed on the one hand but that doesn't also absolve us of personal responsibility on the other hand if we're able to make those lifestyle choices
2: yeah it's not one or the other and sometimes you see the conversation is like um polarized between the people who think it's just corporations or people who think it's just personal responsibility and actually it's both and it's and it is important definitely to have an understanding of what you can actually do personally but um and there is a there is certainly a corporate responsibility, but I certainly don't think it's one or the other. I think there is that combination of both that is going to be required, and and governmental responsibility in terms of, um, I mean to plug our James Medway interview, he talks a lot about <laughs> um, ownership and how ownership of, um, of different things is going to make a huge difference uh, to being able to tackle climate emergency. And he gives the example of Denmark with sort of cooperative inland wind farms, which basically won more widespread support for uh inland wind farming from residents because they owned a stake in it. And that sort of thing is gonna be huge, I think, if we're gonna have any chance of tackling um what's coming.
0: Gulag Jamoon um asks how to make egg bigger than before. Have you guys seen this video? Uh
1: yeah, it's like weird, right? It's one of those it weird It's quite men. weird.
0: <laughs> One of those Facebook weird Facebook recipe videos, but clearly like I, I don't know if it's a parody of Facebook recipe videos it might well be you make egg bigger than before uh, by um I don't even remember the methods you like stick it in maple syrup and vinegar no not vinegar definitely maple syrup or something um, but the process will take seems to take like three days so while you're doing that you should read every article on the social review and listen to every <laughs> podcast um that is how you make egg bigger than before.
2: I will just add, I have no idea what you're talking about. I've not seen this video. I've not heard this.
0: (laughs) Hoy uh, Palloy asks, why is the English nationalism behind Brexit so prevalent in Wales?
2: I mean, it's obviously a bit of a dig, isn't it? At this sort of perception that it's just English nationalism driving uh, Brexit. Um, I think it is important to sort of understand um the role of deindustrialization in brexit and that sort of thing of when you don't give people a stake in the economy then they feel that they are sort of alienated and isolated and not part of something and then um that's going to drive that sort of nostalgic kick that sort of drives things like brexit and um and i think it is true that there is an element of there is certainly like I don't think it's arguable there is an element of English nationalism that drove the Brexit vote, but you are right that there is also a sizeable Brexit vote in Wales, and I don't think it can be I don't think the entire vote can be attributed to English nationalism. I think there is um, a, but but nationalism in general is part of the part of the answer, and uh, British nationalism is part of the answer, and that sort of nostalgia for. To an extent the post-war consensus and to an extent the sort of empire as well um, so yeah it's part of the answer, it is, I agree that it is not all the answer because it does not explain the vote in Wales
1: If, uh, if there's any listener who has a deep acknowledge the kind of long-standing cultural context of the relationship between Welsh and English nationalism regarding kind of more right-wing aspects uh you should pitch us and write it because I would love to read it because <laughs> I genuinely don't know a huge a huge amount about um the kind of intricacies of that kind of cultural history especially potentially in a post-Thatcher world and I would like to read that so uh email us
0: <laughs> I second this
2: yeah, that'd be really good to do that.
0: Fred Jerome, uh, Summer Reads for Social Democrats. Hashtag wet. Uh, <laughs> Utopia for Realists, if you haven't already, by Roderick Um I think that informs kind of the entirety of the social review. Citizen Clem is very good. Um, biography of Clement Attlee.
2: Um, I've been on a massive um, Mark Fisher kick recently, so his K-Punk collection is really good. It's a bit heavy for, like, a beach read, though. It's a massive volume <laughs> of essays and things that's really good um capitalist realism by him is also good and ghosts of my life are really good i've also read this What have i read this oh i read uh people get ready which is this idea of how would a wider movement and the corbyn government um uh how can it prepare for the possibility of government. And sort of it looks at examples such as Mitterrand in France. And um, there's a few others in there and looks at the way that Thatcher changed the civil service and all those kinds of things. And to look at sort of the intricacies of how a radical left government, and it, and it focuses on the idea of it being a Corbyn government, but I think it'd be true of any radical left government. And like, how would you be able to respond and, and, and cope with things like maybe a civil service that isn't um up for everything you want to do or like a um or capital flight or whatever else um so that's that's a really interesting read and um i don't agree with all of it but there's some useful things in there and it's really used and it's really interesting on things like thatcher's ridley plan in the way that she um she approached sort of the miners and picked her battles and all those things so that's really interesting
1: i i just picked up a copy of if they come in the morning which is angela davis's uh, piece that she edited uh it's it's a kind of classic really and it's kind of embarrassing that i haven't read it but a lot of it is analysis about kind of the carceral state and its impact on uh african-american populations in the states and it's it's really 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 good and if you haven't read it um i'd see it's a kind of foundational text if you're thinking about racial justice so uh i believe it's on sale on the verso website so make of that what you will not a plug (laughs) building off of that we were eight years in power
0: by ta nahisi coates is fantastic selection of essays on the same subject matter um He's a fantastic writer and very insightful on race relations in America. Final question, again, from No Meaning, Only Thirst. Uh, what is, for each of you recording, uh, the number one thing you would do for the re- revival slash repurposing of the high streets, especially talking smaller towns? Um, got no choice but to think now. Um <laughs>
1: I would say uh, maybe some kind of system, this is literally, I'm just freewheeling it here, but something to do with making rents affordable for smaller independent businesses because uh, I live in London now, but I have not always lived in London and the decline of the high street at the moment to me seems to be consistently seeing the replacement of small, maybe regional brands. So they might have a few uh, few places in a kind of small area just being driven out and being replaced by... Um, national chains so if there was a way to make uh, rents and shopfronts themselves much more affordable to small local businesses I could see that being very helpful in reviving the high street
2: Uh, that seems sensible I've not really got like yeah I don't know but pitch an article if you've got I mean that's sort of my get out (laughs) Uh, (laughs) pitch something because it sounds interesting and I would like to know what people's ideas are for that
0: gonna have to agree with Eugene again um, because it was a good point and also because it is the exact thing which happens where I live on my high street um, even the big um, national chains have been driven out by high rents on the high street um, long term you want a good thriving high street not necessarily loads of money just coming in from the coffers at any one particular time which may run out when um, the high street doesn't thrive in the future <music> to this week's episode of the social review podcast the music you heard as usual was sweet of her mouth composed by kevin mcleod licensed under creative commons no interview this week as you could tell uh, but rest assured we have got plenty of exciting uh, interviews and content coming up over the next couple of weeks because uh for those next couple of weeks i'm at the editor fringe um which is always very exciting uh, along with a couple of other members of the editorial team here and there so uh if you've got a show on at the fringe a political show Um, or comedy, political comedy, that's always good, Um, and you think we'd like it, get in touch, have a great weekend, and goodbye.